Welcome to the Heart of Dating Podcast. Hey, it's Kate. I'm so glad you could join us this week as we try to untangle the ever so ambiguous world of dating as a Christian. Over here on Heart of Dating, we get real as we answer some tough questions and uncover transformative ways to approach Christian dating. Oh, and you better believe we have some laughs along the way, because last time I checked, the struggle is hashtag real. You know what I'm saying? Now, let's get to the heart of the matter. Gosh, the murky waters of dating are vast, and today we are going all the way into the deep end as we address a huge issue that heartbreakingly affects so many of us. Any guesses? Yep, today we are talking about porn. Today's guest is Clay Olson, who is the president and co-founder of Fight the New Drug, a youth movement dedicated to raising awareness on the harmful effects of pornography and other forms of sexual exploitation. They have been featured basically everywhere, including ABC News, Time Magazine, CBS, CNN, and so many more. Clay has himself presented at over 400 secondary schools, universities, and event centers to hundreds of thousands all over the world. He knows his stuff. The information today was so eye-opening to me, and I found it to be so critical that we decided to actually bring it to you in two parts. The first, diving into the science of porn, and then the second on how porn affects relationships. Just hear me when I say this, you guys. I believe that this is an episode that every man and woman has to hear. This is not a male-only issue. We need to bring this to the light, and we need to have more compassion for those who truly are battling this addiction. Clay states some staggering statistics and facts while also providing so much hope. So, without further ado, here is my interview today with Clay Olson. Hey, Clay, welcome to the Heart of Dating podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. This is awesome. And I actually have to say, I've been especially looking forward to our conversation for so many reasons today. It's been funny because knowing about what we were going to talk about, I have been speaking to some friends in my community, and it's been so interesting, to be honest, because I've been getting one of two responses from people, okay? The first being, wow, that is so amazing, cool. And the second has been, just total silence and deer in headlights, just looking at me like, uh, what, what? <laughs> and it's been really interesting and funny to me to see those two reactions because it just, to me, says so clearly that this is a topic that needs to be discussed and brought to the light. And so I've been kind of just, I've been just really excited to speak with you today. So thank you. Well, thank you. And, and I, I, I have lived that response <laughs> for years and years now. So I, I understand you totally. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. I bet you're like, you're like, so what do you do? And you explain it. They're like, wow, really? <laughs> like, yes, really? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So if you could just do us a favor, you are the co-founder and president um, of a nonprofit organization called Fight the New Drug. Would you just tell us for a second what you guys do? Uh, yeah, so Fight the New Drug is a youth-focused uh, you know, movement. It's an organization dedicated to raising awareness on the harmful effects of pornography, as well as other types of uh, sexual exploitation through mm-hmm. science, facts, and personal accounts. And so we do that through a number of different ways. We do live events, live presentations in high schools, junior highs, middle schools, college campuses, and community events. We speak to parents as well. 
So we do that through live events. We do that a lot through media uh, production, media creation, uh, online activism, uh, social media and whatnot. So uh, our whole focus is to change the conversation uh, and uh, really bring to light uh, some of the challenges and the realities that, that young people as well as adults are facing today, like no other time in history yeah. and, uh, help them make, uh, you know, their own, uh, more healthy decisions in the future. So we're not out to, to, you know, ban pornography or, mm-hmm. uh, we always say that we're not out there to limit the supply, but rather to, to decrease the demand. Mm, that's so cool. I love that too. So I love the name fight the new drug, um, because I guess in ways pornography is like a drug. So can you explain for us a second, the meaning behind that name and you know, how pornography can kind of be an addiction like a drug? Well, yeah, I, you know, when we were selecting the, the name fight the new drug, we were, um, we, we were college students. So I don't know if you know the story about how this all came to be, but we were, I don't even know it. Yeah. Tell me college students, uh, looking to make an impact, knowing that this was an issue, uh, uh, again, that was facing our generation, my peers, like no other time in history that was mm. really profoundly impacting individuals. My own cousin, who was a bit older than I am, he struggled with an addiction so severe that he acted out in ways that were inappropriate and mm. very illegal, and he went to prison. And, and I remember when he got out and I asked him what led him to, to, to that those actions, he told me it stemmed from his struggle with pornography, his Wow. His years and years struggle that started when he was eight years old. Um, mm. So that led me and, and a couple of my buddies in camp, uh, in college, to to really explore this and say, well, is there scientific evidence to the harms? Is there more to it than just a, you know you shouldn't do it kind of a, a um, shame based uh, yeah. approach to this? And, that. and what we found was that there was a lot of uh, peer reviewed research. Um, uh, indicating harms not only to individuals, but to relationships and also to our uh, overarching society. And when we discovered some of this research, and this was years ago, um, we were like, why aren't people talking about this? Why isn't this yeah. part of, of a healthy dialogue and conversation? Mm. Um, and uh, uh, because, uh, again, it was impacting us in a profound way, our society in a profound way. And... Um, and uh, that led us to kind of take a leap into uh, what we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into and in, in mm-hmm. nonprofit organization uh, to raise awareness. My background is in film and marketing. And I kind of thought, you know, you know uh, perhaps with some of the resources I had at my disposal, I could, could help uh, craft uh, um, a message that was, a, a, you know, somewhat attractive or at least yeah. uh, comprehensible by a younger generation. And so that's when we started fighting the drug. And so fighting the drug, we, we knew that we wanted a name that did not use the word pornography because we didn't yeah. want people accidentally searching the very thing we were trying to educate them on. Right. That That's a good call. Yep. <laughs> we also, you know, there's a, a ton of research uh, at that time and even more so a ton since that time has come out indicating the neurological impact of pornography on individuals. Uh, meaning that it was, you know, that it could be addictive. It could lead to compulsive patterns and addiction in some cases uh, for individuals. That the brain responded very similarly uh, uh, with pornography as it did with other types of addictions that we're well aware of. And 
when we discovered that, and that was relatively, historically speaking, relatively new information, and we thought, well, that's different. You hear about pornography and its impact on, uh, um, you know, people frame it in a moral sense, that people frame it in, like, it might impact your relationships. Uh, right because the person might not be okay with that kind of behavior, but you never heard about it actually impacting or leading to an addiction at that time. Uh, it's mm. far more of a dialogue today, but at that time, nobody was really talking about that. And uh, so we really wanted to have a, a name that didn't involve the word pornography, had somewhat of a call to action, and that was provoking and intriguing uh, and, and kind of uh, you know married it to some of the other things that we, were, that we had common ground on, that we collectively understand that you know, cocaine, heroin, and other types of drugs are uh, harmful to individuals. And, and uh, now that we're learning that pornography can have a similar addictive pattern, we wanted to kind of uh, draw attention to that. So that was what, how the name came out. Wow. Yeah, you're right. So when did you guys, so wh- how long have you been doing this now? How long has Fight the New Drug been about? And, and because the conversation has really expanded to your point more than just a moral issue, which I think it's, they're still out there the, um, in the atmosphere that people think that it is a moral issue. Um, but there is much more to it than, than that at all. And there is the addictive patterns to it. So how long ago since you guys started this and, and how much of a journey has that been for you guys? Well, we, we, uh, started about almost, it's coming up on, uh, 10 years Wow! Uh, since we started, well, it was nine and a bit right now. But mm. next year in 2019 will be ten years, and uh, wow. and that's just kind of uh, mind blowing in and of itself uh, that we've been doing this long. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, when we started, um, we really knew that we wanted to frame this more as a public health uh, concern rather mm. than a moralistic, religious, or political. So we, yeah. as an organization, we stay away from the uh, politics of it. We, uh, we try to stay away from legislation and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not to say that there aren't things uh, out there legislatively that probably ought to happen, need to happen. We, as an organization, you know, stick with the uh, education and awareness. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and we don't dive into it from a religious or moral standpoint. Yeah. Um, and again, not to say that that isn't, a, uh, a, a very important part of, uh, some, some individuals reasons for standing mm-hmm. up against pornography or st- yeah. refraining from engaging. But as an organization, we wanted to maintain some common ground that, that, uh, a foundation upon which, you know, all of us can agree. Uh, mm. rather than if you, you have to subscribe to my belief systems to, to understand this, so this is right. Look, come one, come all, whether you are liberal or conservative, if you're mm-hmm. religious or you're you know, atheist or, or agnostic, or you're black or white, or if you live in Africa or you live in, in New York city, you know, this is an, this is something that is impacting our collective society, mm. our, you know, our global, uh, humanity. And, uh, we've got to be more aware of that and we've got to have an honest conversation around it. Love that. So that's so good. Can we talk about some of the chemical effects that pornography and porn may have on the brain itself? So uh, there are so many studies coming out and have come out over the last uh, decade uh, Mm -hmm. indicating uh, the addictive nature of pornography. In fact, 39 of the last Mm -hmm. 39 uh, neurological studies have all confirmed the addictive nature of pornography wow. out of wow. institutions like Cambridge, out of the UK, institutions out of Yale, institutions 
like uh, uh, the Max Planck Institute of Human Development in, in Berlin, all of which are doing research on the neurological uh, impacts of pornography. And we are discovering that this is, again, when, uh, Dr. Valerie Voon from Cambridge University, one of the foremost experts on this topic uh, and addiction, she said that uh, as uh, she studied addiction in general, chemical addiction, for years and years of her career, Mm-hmm. And recently has kind of transitioned to understand sexual compulsivity and addiction. And she said in her, one of her studies that recently came out that as she brain, as she's done brain scans for of individuals that have uh, drug addictions and brain scans of individuals that have sexual compulsivities or addictions with pornography and other things that the brain scans mirror one another, uh, wow. indicating that when it comes to addiction, uh, when it comes to the brain, addiction is addiction. Uh, so the body, the body responds very differently to different types of chemicals and different types of things. Uh, but when it comes to the brain, addiction is addiction. And that's important because yeah. it helps us, uh, not only gain a level of empathy and understanding for those that are struggling, the whole notion of just stop, you know, the whole notion of like, yeah. no better, the whole notion of, you know, how could you do this? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we rarely have that kind of reaction to individuals with alcoholism or addicted to cocaine or heroin. Oftentimes when we find out individuals that are dealing with that, we, there is a level of empathy and sympathy and understanding to kind of say, okay, I, I I'm here for you. How can I help with love and understanding and support and encouragement, uh, and shame and guilt and, and judgment. Um, and so the more we understand about the brain, the more we understand that, uh, we, we, the more we need to alter perhaps uh, our viewpoint on how we address this. Uh, to answer your question more directly, uh, when, it, when we look at the brain, uh, we un- need to understand a few areas of the brain. For those of you who are neuroscientists out there, for those of you who are uh, well-versed in, in the neurochemistry of the brain, you'll, you'll get this. But inside each one of our brains, we have what we call a reward pathway, a reward center. And this is what kind of uh, 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 where we feel pleasure when we do something that we enjoy, that we like, that, that, that brings us happiness. Yeah. Pleasure chemicals like dopamine, epinephrine, oxytocin, serotonin, these chemicals release into the reward pathway of the brain, and it, and it reinforces those behaviors, and it makes us kind of want to return to those and say, I, I want to, I like this, and I want to keep coming back to this. Now, when we introduce chemicals into our body, uh, like cocaine or, or, or heroin, when we introduce substances into our bodies, and or now we're understanding when we participate in addictive patterns or behaviors, such as uh, viewing pornography and masturbation, uh, uh, you know, and, and we know this with gambling and other types of behavioral processes, that uh, it, it triggers that releasing in the reward pathway, uh, and, and it floods that reward pathway, and it kind of gives us that quote-unquote high. And over time, the brain builds up a dependency to that level of release in that context of release, uh, to the point where the things that we used to enjoy start to lose their value and interest. And we need uh, now, uh, in order to just feel normal, we need more of what we've been uh, giving ourselves more frequently and a more extreme and hardcore version just to feel normal. And that process continues to escalate and escalate over time. Now, that's the process of addiction, any type of addiction. And the yeah. brain that it impacts the most is the prefrontal cortex right here, which is the decision-making area of the brain. So this is where we weigh out pros and cons and think through situations and scenarios. And this is the part of the brain that's impacted most. So it's no wonder that addicts have a hard time stopping their unwanted behaviors because the part of their brain that's supposed to, you know, logically assist them in making those decisions to, to uh, maintain the best possible results and the most rewards and the least consequences, uh, that part of the brain 
has been changed, altered, and rewired over time. Mm, uh, gosh. And so, w- uh, again, we've known this for some time with other types of uh, chemical addictions, but w- what we're discovering today is that the same processes occur with sexual compulsivities and addictions as well. And pornography uh, is a very, uh, a, a very powerful force because it taps into one of our primal interests and needs, and that is sex. Mm. And it warps and twists it in a way mm. to the point where, uh, again, we build up a a conditioning to associate sexuality with a screen, associate sexuality with a hollow image rather than with an individual. And that mm. can really warp uh, perceptions and really warp uh, sexuality. And we could get into a whole cavern of things there that we might want to. But uh, uh, yeah, seriously. Um, so in general, it like. Because it taps into our reward center, I'm, I'm going to try my best to follow here because I'm like one of those people that doesn't know anything, which is why I'm so excited to be learning this. So it taps into the reward center, which is what gives us pleasure and what um, what makes us want to do things because it feels good or what what have you on a daily basis. Um, so it kind of forms new is new pathways like neuron. What is the word I'm looking for? Absolutely. Neuro pathways. Okay. Well, what we need to understand about the brain is that the brain is constantly changing as we've gone around the world, speaking to the world's leading experts on uh, neuroscientists, uh, you know, on the brain. Uh, they they talk about a discovery that happened, you know, uh, years back, but relatively speaking, historically speaking, not that long ago. And that discovery was neuroplasticity. Neural mm. brain plasticity, meaning changeability, yeah. moldability. And this, this discovery was pretty big because we used to believe that once you hit adulthood, you know, 20, early 20s, that your brain kind of became fixed, that it was no longer yeah. developing. You know, the prefrontal cortex, prefrontal cortex was no longer developing as it is with adolescence, and it was fixed. What we now know is that the brain is constantly changing and molding and adapting, adapting and rewiring according to what we do, think, consume, watch. Uh, participate in on a regular basis. In fact, this is a wonderful discovery because it helps us understand the process of of advancement and learning. If we want to learn how to play a musical instrument or or a sport, um, our brain rewires itself uh, and creates new neural pathways to be more efficient, more powerful, more, uh, more capable in those categories as we rehearse, as we practice over time. And, right. and so the brain is constantly changing. Your brain is changing, you know, as you consume new things. And, 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 and that can be used to help us learn and advance and progress and develop. But it can also be used, neuroplasticity can also be used against us in the sense that as we right. develop bad habits or patterns or focus on negative uh, uh, areas, uh, that it can rewire to conform and adapt to those elements as well. And that's what we're seeing with these process addictions, uh, as well, as well as with chemical addictions. So just like that, like that example, so it means because of that and because neuroplasticity exists, it doesn't mean that if I'm 30, I can't learn how to play an instrument because I can make new neural pathways to be able to help me play the instrument. So similarly, um, I guess my next question leads into that is because of that, if someone has a porn addiction, does it do irreplaceable damage to the brain or can that be rewired, in fact, away from that? Because you think of it, if you are thinking about it like a true addiction, like someone addicted to cocaine, you that can do some very, very harmful damage to your brain. So when it comes to pornography, does it do irreplaceable damage to the brain or can that be um, healed? Can that be rewired? Uh, I think that's an excellent question. And that's kind of 
the uh, that's the the hope in all of it is that yeah. because of this discovery of neuroplasticity, we now know that the brain is changing according to what do, meaning that it can heal, that it can rewire back to a more healthy state, uh, and. Uh, over time, and that can be a difficult thing, depending on how deep that 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 addiction or that uh, compulsive compulsive behavior had developed into. But but the brain can change. The brain, mm. That healing and recovery is real. And and you mentioned that you know at at an older age you can learn new tricks. Like you can't tr- and, uh, teach an old dog new tricks. Yeah. Well, um, that's you know of course that's <laughs> not true. We know that's not true. People can learn, yeah. but it is more difficult. Why is it more difficult? Because when you are an adolescent, when you are uh, developing in adolescence, and you are, you, your prefrontal cortex is still in development and you're still learning, those processes are far more potent and powerful in, in establishing one's brain. Mm-hmm. So it is more difficult the older you get, meaning recovery is, 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 uh, is something that is accessible at, um, at any time. However, the sooner you catch it, the more uh, the, the the easier it will come. Um, gotcha. The earlier you start learning an instrument, the easier it comes, whereas uh, an individual in their 50s, it, it takes a little bit more because yeah. we're a little bit more anchored. So uh, anyway. That's awesome. No, but that's – and that right there brings us all, I feel like, just so much hope for any of the listeners who maybe they are struggling with a porn addiction or they know someone who deeply is. There's so much hope in that, just like there are for people addicted to other kinds of like drugs and cocaine and alcohol and everything. But I think that's something that just brings so much hope um, that it can be conquered and you can form new neural – I can't say the word play. Neural, (laughs) yes. I'm like, I need to write this down. Neural pathways. And so, okay, for someone who may be struggling right now with a porn addiction, knowing that they may want to create new neural pathways and get on that um, path to healing, how long, and you kind of touched on this, but how long realistically is that going to take someone? And I know it may depend, but yeah, uh, it does absolutely depend, depend um, on a number of factors. Mm-hmm. It depends on, uh, you know, the person's environment uh, it, uh, and kind of what they're exposing themselves to on a regular basis and, and how they're able to distance themselves from these struggles. It depends uh, upon, uh, you know, how long it's been going on, you know, what what type of rewiring needs to occur in their life, uh, in their brain. Uh, to reach a more stable uh, condition. Um, and it, it depends greatly on their support system and then who yeah. they have to sustain and help them and, and what kind of um, team they have, uh, accountability team they have with them. And it depends uh, in the enormous amount upon uh, their own personal drive and willingness to change. Mm, um, yeah, if an individual it is, you know, one foot out, one foot in kind of, uh, has that approach to recovery, it will be, um, a much more challenging struggle to get through. Yeah. Um, uh, many people are looking for the silver bullet. Like what, what pill do I need to take? What, right. what book do I need to read? What program do I need to sign up for to just kind of get this behind me? I need to just get done. Um, the truth is that recovery is a process. Um, and that, uh, it, it takes time and they need to, re- and the more they, um, embrace that process, this cold Turkey, I'm never going to do it from here on out is, is rarely, uh, 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 um, achievable, uh, 
uh, yeah, or attainable. Not as realistic. Yeah. Not realistic. So they need to embrace the process that there, there will be stumbles. There will be setbacks along the way. There will be moments of, of, um, of, you know, challenge and mm-hmm. ability along the way. But with that team and with that kind of recognition, they can uh, see things for what they are and they can start moving in a more healthy direction over time. And, and that process is just iterative. It's, it's kind of a line upon line kind of a process. And, and, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll reach a point if they are dedicated to recovery, they'll reach a point mm. where they are in fact, uh, no longer so triggered, no longer so vulnerable, uh, or, or, uh, easily swayed into, uh, that, it's no longer going to be kind of top of mind and yeah. uh, all encompassing consuming. It's going to be something that they, they, they stop thinking about and they can just live their yeah. lives. And I think it's important to, to make this distinction. When we talk about addiction, oftentimes we use that, that word addiction to kind of, uh, encompass all things, all people that struggle with anything. I'm mm-hmm. Blank. I'm addicted to blank. And, and, and the reality and the truth is, is that that word uh, when we talk it from a clinical standpoint is uh, a real word and it has, and it has a lot of weight and it applies to many, but it doesn't yeah. apply to all. We need to stop looking at the, uh, you know, when, when talking about, uh, pornography particularly, but, but, uh, any addiction for that. Yeah. We need to stop looking at it as an on off switch. Like I have it or I don't, I am or I'm not. Um, and more like a gradient, more like a spectrum of struggle. Mm. And, uh, and it, it starts with just, uh, habitual patterns, compulsive patterns, obsessive patterns and addictive patterns. And, and I think that that regardless of where somebody might fall in that spectrum, um, help and the same processes of the recovery can be applied and they can find themselves uh, seeking uh, more healthy pathways in their life. But, uh, and, and, you know, honestly, the sooner they kind of recognize that and work on that, uh, the more uh, capable they'll be in, in overcoming. Uh, the longer they wait, the more that escalates and, and develops into right. action. So, yeah, I think that's an important distinction for viewers, yeah. particularly when talking about youth. Um, rarely are youth addicted to porn, and often they use that word, and it creates a lot of psychological weight on their shoulders. So, yeah. like, once an addict, always an addict, I'll never get over this kind of stuff. And that's much not true. So we need to be more careful about using that term so loosely because you're right. It is an, a, a kind of term that we that we just blanket statement all the time. Like I'm addicted to Netflix. I'm addicted to this, you know, and it may just be like I, I really enjoy watching Netflix and sometimes I go on a Netflix binge, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I bad have – Yeah, it's I'm a bad habit. struggling with this, but not yes. – addiction is a strong word and it applies, but we use it too frequently. Right. Okay. So – I think that there's probably a lot of people listening that are just curious about this. Maybe it's someone who doesn't know a lot about porn, or maybe it's someone who is struggling about with porn right now. Can you just share with us a little bit? This is something that affects a, a massive amount of people, and I think that that there needs to be some awareness to that about how many people it actually does affect. Because when you hear, or if someone admits, "I have a, a struggle with I struggle with pornography," or "I have a porn addiction," sometimes the reaction is like, "Whoa, really?" As if it, as if nobody else in the world struggles with that. But that is definitely not the case. So can you share a little bit with us, like how many people actually are affected by porn and maybe some statistics or things for the listeners to just encourage them? Um, yes. Okay. So when it comes to statistics on this issue of how many people are struggling, there are a number of studies that range greatly in their figures. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it's a very difficult number to find because of the secrecy, because of the shame mm. um, and isolation around the subject. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people withhold, uh, uh, you know, the full truth or, uh, on surveys or are unwilling to participate because of that. So, so it's really difficult to actually say it definitively X percent of society are dealing with this or whatever. However, yeah. what we know through studies uh, and, and through um, uh, to the surveys that have been conducted is that it is an astronomical figure. Those that are in, uh, struggling with this, um, if they do feel that they are the only one or that they are broken or in some way, uh, defective as a human being because of this, you know, thing that, they, that if anybody knew that they would just run for the hills. Um, the truth is, is that this is impacting, uh, I, I, I recently met, mm-hmm. uh, a, a man and by the, a 30 year old man yeah, who told me that he had never seen pornography and he I literally, to this day, that is the, and I, and I deal with this a lot. So I'm talking to a lot of people over the last 10 years about this issue. He is the first person I've ever met that is, Mm. that has never seen it and never struggled to, he's a unicorn. And so it really is uh, something that is is impacting um, uh, some, some people have joked and said that, uh, you know, know, 90% of guys have struggled with this and the other 10% are lying. Um, So really this is something that is impacting a lot of men and it's impacting a lot of females as well. Yeah. Females, yeah. The, the shame associated with female viewers is actually much higher than males because mm. females uh, feel like they are in some way broken or different because they, because this is a man's issue. And that's just not true either. 30% of those that consider themselves to be addicted are female. Uh, mm. And so the female uh, use is on the rise uh, because uh, pornographers uh, not long ago discovered that they were missing a, a massive demographic and they started creating material that was more story-based, more emotionally focused, um, which drew in the, uh, the female market Ooh, more. That makes sense. And the, the, the content more focused on the males. But what we find, this is really interesting. Mm, I'm loving it. The, <laughs> Keep going. The access points for females' entry into viewing pornography and their acceptance of pornography starts in a very different place than where males starts. Males start, they're very visual. They just kind of jump right in and they, theirs is all about kind of get right to it. Uh, you know, the, you know, any sort of scene involving an acting scene, it is, it is like two sen- seconds of dialogue and right to it. Right. Uh, females enter into a very different spot. They enter in oftentimes through literature, through, through romance novel type material, you know, it's like soft, uh, uh, Material which kind of lead them into viewing different types of story based and very emotional based pornography. But as both uh, male and females view for over time and get exposed to the type of material that is currently available online, um, what we find is that they their their uh, preferences and their desires and what they are actually seeking actually start to go more and more similar into a similar point, which is pretty hardcore. Uh, often degrading and violent material toward women, and 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 as women are find themselves more and more uh, consuming that more and more, they are more accepting of that, and, and they find it more attractive as their sexual templates start to uh, kind of warp into involving uh, violence uh, uh, in, in, into that. A study was done by the University of Arkansas and NYU, where they found eighty eight percent 
of the most popular scenes uh, that were rented and, and uh, viewed by consumers in 2012 uh, were, were found to be not only verbally but also physically aggressive to women. Uh, and so 80, that's nearly 90%, which, wow. which from a neurological perspective starts to warp one's idea because what, what I found most interesting about that study uh, and what others have pointed out is the fact that, um, uh, that the reactions, 95% of the time, in those scenes where, where uh, physical aggression and violence were, uh, were happening to women, 95% of the time, the women responded with either pleasure or no response at all. And so it's conditioning a younger generation to associate violence and aggression uh, with, with, uh, with sexuality and that they are wow. the same. And so it's really uh, shifting uh, the very definition of intimacy and love for a rising generation. Wow. That's kind of blowing my mind a bit because I think oftentimes this topic is talked about and it more is hyper-focused towards men. And so I'm just so grateful that you just explained and laid it all out for us that this isn't just, a, it doesn't affect just men and that it does highly affect women. And in fact, wow, like the industry has noticed how much it can affect women and and changed it to actually appeal more to them. And so, and then just the repercussions of that over time. Yeah. Okay. That, that's, that's really, really good for us to hear. And I think it's good for, for men and women to hear. So can I just ask you, do you like to wind down with some wine every once in a while? What about some wine delivery? I mean, I'm raising my hand over here. I would not complain about some wine delivery. So there is this incredible company called Wink that actually customizes your wine preferences and handpicks four bottles of wine just for you and delivers them to your front door every month. It's pretty much a wine club, but it also happens to be one of the easiest to use and also the number one rated with no cancellation fees. They also exclusively sell summer water, which is my favorite rosé. So when you sign up, they have you take a palate test. Maybe you don't really know what you like in wine, so this is great because it will help you figure that out. Or maybe you do know what you really love, so this will help you discover more wines that are perfect for your developed taste. They ask you questions like, how do you like your coffee? Strong and black, of course. Or how do you feel about salt? Do you like mushrooms or truffles? From there, they recommend four bottles just for you. But don't worry, you can also customize it to whatever you like, you guys. They deliver all four bottles to your door free of charge. Each month, you get four different bottles, but you can modify or skip any scheduled order. You can also cancel any time with no issues. Their bottles start at just $13, so they're really nice. And today, you guys, you can get Wink for $25 off, which is basically like two bottles of free wine. Yes, please. To get this amazing promotion, you can go to trywink.com slash HOD podcast. That's trywink, W-I-N-C dot com slash HOD podcast. And if you're questioning this at all right now, I just want to ask you, this would be incredible for a date night, don't you think? So why not? Something I just want to ask you on that, and as we know that it, it affects a vast amount of people, and I think we've already established that it really isn't, it can't be focused into a moral issue, um, and that it's so much more than that. So 
Can you explain and walk us through the difference between shame and guilt when it comes to porn and how um, damaging in ways that shame can be when it comes to someone struggling with porn? Yeah. And, and before I get there, I want to make sure I clarify with the whole moral yeah. issue. Like, it's not yeah. to say that they're, they're, they're approaching this from a moral standpoint or talking about this in moral or a religious standpoint, that that has its place. And within those yeah. that, that, that uh, have those same values and beliefs, that can be a very powerful and motivating kind mm-hmm. of framework to experience this conversation. However, when we talk about the larger conversation, the larger media, the larger dialogue, we need to be able to kind of anchor ourselves to, um, to, to common ground that we can all agree upon. And, and that kind of centers on science that centers yeah. on facts and personal accounts that centers on, on what this is doing to us, uh, both individually, relationally and societally, uh, and, and looking at the research around that. So, um, so that's yeah. why we take the position we do, but it's not to belittle or downplay the the, the role that uh, um, you know a, a moral the, the moral dialogue uh, and the impact that that can have. So I apologize. Definitely. I just want to make that distinction. Um, no, that's great. That's really really helpful. Um, so ask that question one more time. Uh, yeah. So there's with so many people who do struggle with it, and knowing that it, it impacts a vast amount of people, um, there's a tendency. For, for shame versus oh, guilt. Yeah. And can we just talk about the difference between shame and guilt and how damaging shame can be to one who is struggling with porn? Yes. So that is a great question and one that we have taken very seriously. Yeah. Uh, we wanted to remove shame. And, and you know, before, uh, you know, back in the day when you would see an interview with a porn addict, you know, talking about their struggle with pornography uh, you know, or anything of that nature, you would often mm-hmm. see a changed voice, a, a dark screen covering their face. Like you, you, you they would distort mm-hmm. the, the, the voice, uh, so that you, you couldn't tell who that person was. And although that was, that was, uh, to, to, um, kind of protect that individual, it was because of the shame associated with it, because of the associated with it. They were like, I can't, this will destroy, destroy my career. It'll destroy my family. I, I, I've got to be secret. And today, what we're seeing as we kind of engage is we're trying to like lift that shame and remove that so that people can be honest and open and not be not have people respond with judgment and shame, but rather with love, understanding, uh, support, encouragement. And um, so, when we talk to parents, this is a huge, uh, you know, point that we try. Yes. Oh, I can imagine. And when we talk to to you know adults, we need to change the way we we. Uh, we think of this, uh, yeah. and, I, and I think that understanding the neurological impacts and understanding the, the massive scale that this issue has developed into, um, it, there is a level of, of kind of humble sobriety that kind of comes over you and say, okay, wow, I, I, I need to kind of like be a part of the solution and help people mm-hmm. and not condemn and wag a finger of no. Uh, and so it, it can be, shame can be extremely toxic. And for anybody in recovery, um, if shame uh, is, is playing a role in that recovery, it can stunt progress uh, profoundly. Wow. Um, so when it comes to a spouse working with their you know, loved one, when it comes to a parent working with their child, when it comes to us mm-hmm. as a society working with those that, that might be dealing with this, um, we need to just respond differently. There's a difference between guilt and shame. And it's yeah. often kind of uh, understood. Shame is I am a bad person. Guilt is I've done a bad thing, and, and I yeah. have to re- correct that. Um, and uh, we, we tell when we go out to middle schools and high schools and junior highs, we make sure it's clear. But 
if you struggle with this or you're dealing with this at all, if you've been exposed to this, you are not a bad person. And that they need to hear that loud and clear that they're normal. That sexuality is a part of who we are and that can be wonderful in the right context and uh, in a a committed relationship and how, how pornography can really distort love. As we now know through studies that, that pornography uh, not only impacts what we love, but how much we love, how we think about those we love, and how we express love. And so love mm. is the core foundation of who we are as individuals and what brings us happiness in this life. And and I think that uh, individuals that are aware of that want to move in a in better direction. We need to we need to be that support team to help them get there. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think I read on your website, too, on the website, that it says, hate hate the porn, not the, not the person Yeah, that it, it, that we can't be it. So it's just coming back to exactly what you're saying. And, and personally, I've listened to a lot of Brene Brown. She talks a lot about this too, with shame and guilt. And there's just so much good research on the difference between shame and guilt. And that, that not only has it, you know, it is extended to the viewer, but it's extended to the performers as well. Um, you know, that, uh, we need to, to, um, just do a better job at, uh, you know, it, it, it is something that, you know, I'm, I'm speaking from a point of view where I am actively out there trying to help people in this area. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and it, you know, people could maybe perhaps the perception that we are, uh, you know, that we are aggressively attacking the industry when, when in fact, we're really just trying to inform the public about this potential you know, extremely harmful thing based on the research and studies that have been conducted. And, uh, and that's a different framework, a different narrative that, uh, try to make sure is clear. Yeah. Because I think to that point, it's like guilt, it leads to understanding that it's, that you've done something bad, but there is a motivation and an empowerment that comes behind just feeling the guilt of it versus the shame, which makes you just feel, I am an awful, terrible person. I can't conquer this. Like, what have I done? Yeah. And you just, you can't even move forward. I think so much in our lives, like we, I mean, on a general level, it's, we can't, we can't be products of shame. We can't produce shame. We can't make some shame people because it stunts all of our growth and any possibility for change. But I think even in the way we approach it and the way we say things to people, we have to be very careful that it's not shame-based, that we're not propelling people into deep, dark shame. Um, and rather just the awareness of, of guilt. And yes, this is not a good thing, but it doesn't mean that you're a horrible person and can't move forward. And, and, and I think sometimes we can actually overcorrect in this category and get, and, mm. and, and, and an attempt to remove the presence of guilt, uh, that any sort of, you know, feeling True. of, I need to, you know, I, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I need to, you know, be, I, I can be better. Um, I can do better. Um, any sort of kind of self-acknowledgement of that, you know, some would say, well, no, that's not be you, do you, whatever feels right, whatever. And, and there is a healthy level of guilt, uh, that is appropriate. Yeah. And, and guilt can be a powerful motivator for correct self correcting an improvement. And that is, uh, and so, um, I think that, uh, we need to acknowledge the, the, pre- the presence of guilt and its role in all of this and, and really remove shame. Shame yeah. is the toxicity that we want to get rid of. Yeah. So good. And I think you actually just touched about it too. It leads into like another thought I wanted to ask you with, um, it's just how porn, you know, we now know more of the science behind how it really affects our brains, but 
How also does it affect our attitudes and views towards sex, towards intimacy, towards women? Because those are all different things, but it, I, it really does impact all of that. Um, and so can you just go into how, how porn affects those different areas? Oh, yeah. Um, it, based on the research alone, let alone the anecdotal, the, the hundreds of thousands of the anecdotal messages we've received over the years, uh, mm. based on the research alone, we are discovering that pornography is impacting, again, I'll repeat it, it's in, impacting what we love, how much we love, how we think yeah. about those we love, and how we express love. Basically, look at, let, let's break those down for a moment. So what we love is impacting what we actually love, what we seek, what we desire, what we crave. Um, uh, based on what we consume, let's come back to neuroplasticity, based on what we consume regularly, uh, that can change and work what we then seek from that, from that point forward. Um, a study was conducted back in the day by the, uh, doc, Dr. Tim Burgeon. In 1973, he actually conducted a study that won him the Nobel Prize. Um, what he coined the term supernormal stimulus, which basically means that you're exposed to things that are kind of more exaggerated uh, and uh, more, you know, larger and, and grander than normal everyday life would provide. And he, and he discovered this because he actually, uh, believe it or not, he was actually uh, analyzing butterflies. So, oh, wow. And he later did this with chickens and their eggs and, and other things and, and, and uh, applied it to human, uh, human brands as well. But let me go back to the butterflies that kind of worked yeah. brand for him. So he, he analyzed butterflies. And what he did is that he, he uh, assessed which markings on the female butterflies were most eye-catching and attractive to the males. And once mm. he had discovered that, he then created his own cardboard versions of these butterflies but made the colors more vibrant. Mm more colorful, more extreme, larger than normal life would normally provide. And then he put those cardboard decoy butterflies in an environment with both the male and female butterflies during mating season, uh, where the males mm -hmm. are wanting to, to mate and reproduce. And, and what he found is that over time, the, 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 uh, the butterflies, the male butterflies would exclusively try to mate and connect with the female or sorry, the cardboard decoys. And wow. or the real female butterflies in their midst. Um, and uh, and it, it was shocking to him. And what he discovered with that study and several other studies is that first you figure out what stimulates the brain. Uh, and we know sex is a powerful stimulus. Uh, mm -hmm. The desire for sexuality. And, and uh, uh, two, you create an exaggerated version of that stimulus. Um, one that kind of exceeds normal everyday life. And, 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 and so pornography is literally at the tip of that spear yeah. of, of creating something that is, is so incredibly fake. Uh, every, mm -hmm. Other people look to the reasons that they engage are so exaggerated and, and non-real in the situations that they find themselves in, you know, uh, so astronomically um, outside of the realm of reality yeah. um, that, 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 but it kind of satisfies that interest. And then the, the third thing on that list was that the brain over time will start to prefer the exaggerated version over the real version uh, mm. start to crave it. And we're starting to see that within pornography uh, where men uh, not only prefer the fantasy to reality, prefer the pixels to people, um, but they, they, because I mean, let's break that down. Why? Well, pornography yeah. uh, is always willing. It's always ready. It's always new. It's always different. So the novelty factor within the brain that the brain's constantly seeking novelty it never yeah. get up in the morning. It doesn't, uh, you didn't have an argument with that person. It doesn't have weird in lines. It doesn't have a period. It doesn't you know all these things. Yeah. Feel what relationships kind of 
um, you know, create the, uh, the, the nuance and, and tug of war of give and take and desire. And, and pornography is only focused on your interests. Only. Yeah. And uh, there's very yeah. self-seeking. It's just very self-centered. Very yeah. So as individuals consume that, a heightened, exaggerated version of sexuality on a computer screen, uh, which is always focused, how then is that warping and changing our sexual interests? Uh, over mm. Well, Norman Deutsch wrote a book called uh, The Brain That Changes Itself. And he, in, in it, he said that basically, and I'll paraphrase, he said that uh, sexual tastes are molded by an individual's culture and surroundings around them and what they consume. And uh, basically what we consume on a regular basis can over time start to rewire neurologically and biologically start to rewire our sexual and arousal templates. And so, and we see that we've received emails coming in where young boys and they're, you know, 11, 12 years old are saying, uh, you know, now I need, I feel like I need violent, aggressive fantasies and the stuff I used to watch no longer works. Um, and so there's sexual and arousal templates. A young girl, you know, just saying that, you know, her reaction to non-consensual sex and violence against women is like, yeah, it's not a big deal anymore. Um, is that warping and shaping is occurring? So, uh, so we're seeing that as far as like how it's shaping what we love. And then when it comes to how much we love, um, nearly 40 studies have been conducted in, in, in recent years. And a, meta, a meta-analysis was conducted where they looked at all 40 and they kind of assessed all the data in all mm. studies. It's the highest standard of, of research is a meta-study. Wow. Um, yeah. Meta-study was conducted and they found across the board that individuals that consume pornography on a regular basis experienced a decrease in their satisfaction, in, in most cases a significant mm. decrease in their satisfaction with their partners or with the real world around them. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, when we think about what brings us happiness, we think, well, relationships, relationships are the very center. In fact, a Harvard study did a, the most longitudinal study of, of all time that, that looks, uh, at what, you know, what is happiness, what brings happiness. Yeah. And, uh, uh, what they found in that study is that relationships are at, are head and shoulders above anything else on that list is that relationships bring us the most happiness. And so this is impacting how we, you know, how much we love those relationships because it starts to shift our attention and focus to the pixels on the screen because that is uh, the path of least resistance. And it is what we're being conditioned to crave and desire with our sexuality. Um, it also mm-hmm. impacts, uh, you know, how we think about those we love. And so, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. Terry Crews talked about this, you know, around the objectification. It basically turns everyone into a collection of body parts rather than an individual with feelings and thoughts and ambitions and desires and, and ideas. Um, and, uh, and Terry uh, talked about how it just shifted his, the way he looked at all those around him, his colleagues, his coworkers, the, the random stranger on the street. It, he objectified everybody around him. Um, and he had to go to rehab for this. He, he talks about how he had to go to rehab for that and many others wow. in that same type of objectification. And the fourth and mm. final thing that you know, we, we see how it's impacting uh, uh, relationships is that it affects how we even express it. Um, a study was done, well, a number of studies. Uh, Time magazine actually came out with their cover story on this a couple of years back. Wow, yeah. But uh, in 1993, a study was conducted looking at sexual dysfunction among men. So this is erectile dysfunction and lower. Yeah. 
1993, this is pre-internet because most people got internet in the mid nineties and, you know, even the, uh, yeah. Yeah. Early two thousands. into the yeah. homes. So, so pre-internet 1993, they found that 5% of men, this was done by the national center on health, uh, national health and wellness association. And they found that 5% of men ages 18 to 59 were experiencing some level of sexual dysfunction. Okay. So that's not super surprising. Yeah. Like, you got the the older category in there, fifty to fifty nine, and that's when it can start for some people. So five percent of that category, not such a big deal. Not bad. Yeah. In two thousand twelve, another study was conducted where they found that thirty five percent of men ages uh, uh, eighteen to twenty five. So they didn't even go up to that older category. Wow. So you're just in that. And that's only 19 years later. Okay. Yeah. They found that uh, 35% of men were experiencing sexual dysfunction, like a lower libido and erectile dysfunction. Wow. And we're starting to see, well, now hold on. That's, that's a different, uh, that's a different narrative than we see the Cialis commercials looking at older men. Like, you know, that's a huge, huge group. Yeah. And then in 2014, a third study was conducted where they found that 53.5% of men ages 16 to 21 were experiencing some level of sexual dysfunction. So, I mean, wow. so, I mean, this is a huge, uh, kind of shift, Whoa. uh, among men's ability. And this was focused on men, but a huge shift in men's ability to express love. Many, uh, indicated, uh, that they were in, their, their inability to get aroused with just another human. They needed pornography, uh, in order to kind of reach that arousal. And then they would play the films in their mind in order to reach climax. And it wasn't from the experience in front of them. That was just more of a vehicle to reach that climax. But what they were visualizing in their mind was actually everything that they had seen in pornography in order to get there. And it wasn't that they didn't want to focus on this individual yeah. in front of them. But it was like, if I'm going to get there, I've got to go to porn. And, and mm. Dr. Morgenthaler from the Harvard University Medical School, he said that it's, um, it's clear that this is a new phenomenon and that it's not rare. Uh, mm. They call it porn-induced erectile dysfunction now. So, wow. So this is impacting relationships and our ability to connect and love in in astronomical Huge ways. Wave. What we love, yeah. how much we love, how we think about those we love, and how we express love. And uh, that's why at Five Minute Drug, we kind of uh, have the T-shirts that say "Porn Kills Love." Kills love, yeah. Uh, that's what it's doing. Oh my gosh. Clay, that was phenomenal. I'm like, I need to sit and re-listen to that, honestly, to just understand the weight and gravity of how much this affects so many different areas. Um, okay, so we're gonna we're gonna take a pause here because there's a, a lot to go over and we're gonna come right on back. Now that we know how much it affects so many different people and how it affects it, how it can be an addiction, how it affects the brain. I want to dive into a little bit more specifically on the heart of dating podcast, how it affects dating. So we're going to come back and, and talk a little bit more about how it affects dating. Okay. So how is everyone feeling so far? So many stats, so many learnings. I think the stat that got me most tripped up was when Clay said in 2014, they discovered that 63.5% of men ages 16 to 21 were experiencing some level of sexual dysfunction. Heartbreaking. But also from today, I feel so much hope that this can be conquered. I really think that this issue is not always handled with enough care, and we have to be more thoughtful with our words to one another regarding this problem. Let me ask you this. What if instead of shame, we offered encouragement to one another, empowering one another to conquer this? 
I really hope today that you can walk away feeling as though you understand the neurological impacts of porn on the brain, that it can really be an addiction just like a drug, but that thankfully, because of neuroplasticity, we can actually retrain our brains and conquer the addiction. I'm so excited to continue this interview with Clay next week as we dive into how porn affects dating relationships. I cannot be more thankful for your support of the Heart of Dating podcast. I am blown away by your rankings, reviews, messages, all of it. If you want to be a part of our inner circle and support what we are doing, we encourage you to pledge any dollar amount that you want on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash heart of dating. Also, if you like this podcast, would you please consider giving us a review? It helps us immensely and we cannot thank you more. Until next time, friends.